It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Okay, I know three years now into this pandemic, a lot of you are feeling trapped, trapped in your apartment, trapped in your home, your dorm room. But my guest today spent the first 42 years of her life literally trapped in an ultra-religious community that decided everything for her. Until that is, at age 42, after eight years of secret planning, She escaped, but that is so far from the end of the story, with nothing but the encouragement of her young daughter and her absolute belief that the freedom she grabbed at great cost would eventually lead to a successful life if she fought hard enough. She reached for the moon, and after refusing to give up, she snagged it. I am so honored to introduce you to Julia Hart, CEO of the world's largest conglomerate of modeling agencies, Elite World Group, and star of the hit Netflix show, My Unorthodox Life. Julia, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. I've been a fangirl of yours for a while, Julia, so I'm (laughs) totally psyched to, to hear your story. And as you know, this podcast is really for people who are stuck or they feel like there's, they've got so much more in them, but they can't quite take that leap of faith because they're worried about how deep or how shallow the water is or how hot or how cold it is. But I think that the stories that we tell here of people like you indicate that you do just have to jump. And that's very much been your story. But oh, yeah. I, I do want to start with sort of what has made you a national and international name, and that is how you were able to extricate yourself from what was an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and where you found the courage to do something like that. Tell me about growing up in that community first and when perhaps you started to see the shift that there's something not quite right here. So... um First of all, thank you so much for having me, Liz. You are such an icon. You have done so much. And I think having you, you know, fight for the fight, the good fight is so important, really. I'm so appreciative to be here. Um, In terms of, you know, my entire life, the biggest dichotomy was what was inside of me. My nature and personality did not gel with what I was taught a woman had to be. I wasn't shy. I wasn't quiet. I wasn't retiring. I wanted to study and learn. And I was told that a woman learning Gemara or Talmud, where all the rules that follow our lives are, is death. You know, it's bad. It's evil. Women were not allowed to study anything. So my entire life, I thought something was wrong with me. And it wasn't until my daughter, Miriam, She's the beginning and end of my journey because she is the reason that I in, allowed myself to question what I had been thinking in my mind all along. My five-year-old was asking those questions. Why do I have to ride in a bike and a skirt just so a man won't see my knees? Why is that my problem? Why can't I play soccer with normal soccer attire with regular teams? Why? Because a man might see your knees or your elbows or this. Why is that my problem? And when she started asking the questions I've been asking my entire life, it gave me permission to ask because you have to realize it's you against 5,000 years of tradition and God, right? That's the way, it's not a very fair fight. So, but they couldn't convince me my five-year-old was that. 
So she's the person who gave me permission to ask the question and acknowledge that it's not that I'm inherently evil, it's that something is wrong with this society. Because my entire life, I thought I was inherently evil. You know what shocks me? That the Talmud teaches people, the Jewish people, to question. You know, we love to say that, you know, when you compare per capita how few Jews there are in the world to how many Nobel Prizes in science, oh, yeah. economics, and et cetera, that we've won, it's because my dad used to say, he was a brilliant surgeon, we were taught to question everything. And yet, the sect that you were in berated you and kept you from questioning things. Yeah, you're only allowed to question with that within the confines of certain immutable and unchangeable givens. So if you want to question what the, you know, what are the the implications of a law or why is this important? Great. If you want to question the validity of anything, you're a very bad person. Forget it. Exactly. So it's questioning within a very, uh, you know, specific frame with a given that women's purpose in life is to be here to be mothers and to support their husbands and, and to make sure that they work and earn the income and have the babies and run the household. So the man only has to do is study to So our only, our only, you know, way to get to heaven was through man. We had to help him be great. That was the only way we could be great. And so she was the beginning of my story. And then it took me eight years to plan my escape, to educate myself, which is, you know, I always say that to me, one of my biggest strengths is the fact that I am a constant student. Instead of taking pride in what I know, I take pride in how quickly I can learn. And that has enabled me to look at what should be as opposed to what is, which is why when I took over Elite World Group, I didn't, I wasn't mired in the, this is how it's done, or this is the industry. I didn't know. So I chose what I thought the industry should be. I didn't care what it was. Julia, you say it took eight years. Let's get you to the eighth year and the night before. I may be oversimplifying this, but... But no, it's exactly a good question. Okay. How old were you and was your heart beating? Take us inside your mind and your soul at that point. So again, Miriam is the reason that I actually walked out the door. She was the reason I started planning for it, but... I planned for it. I saved for it. I educated myself. But actually walking out, that's a whole other thing to actually do it. And Miriam helped me there, too, because she came home devastated. And she's not a crier. Both of us are not criers. We're very tough. (laughs) And she came crying, hysterically. I think it's probably the first time I'd ever seen that because she was accused of cheating because what she wrote was too good. So they assumed that somebody must have helped her. Some man must have helped him. And that was it. Packed my bags and walked out the door. Didn't have a plan. Didn't organize my exit. I was a total wreck. I was just the anger just was flowing out of me in every imaginable. My body couldn't contain it anymore. And my original plan, honestly, between you and me, and I guess now all your listeners, <laughs> is that you know, I was planning on killing myself. But when I walked out the door, I was uh, 42 years old. It was November 2012. I generally say 43 because a few months later I turned 43. But to be super accurate, it was November 2012. I was 42. Um, and I, I was not well, meaning it, 
it's time travel. You leave everyone you know, everything you've ever known into a world where you're a zero, where you have no name, no, no one knows you. I don't think anyone can understand what that feels like to start at 42 without having anyone who's ever heard of you, who can vouch for you, who met you at a different job or in college or in high school at a party. It's really the most difficult, impossible thing to do. And the and what saved me is my daughter. It was that I realized that my dying wasn't going to help her and that she would have to live through the same thing I did and that they would push her down and eradicate her individuality and uniqueness because that was a danger to them. She was dangerous. Did she come with you at that point? She did. She did. Well, she said, Mommy, what are we doing? This is so weird. She said, Mommy, what are we doing? But I love it. (laughs) (laughs) She was, of course, you know, she was, I mean, she was my quickest transformation because she was as miserable as I was. She's a very strong, independent person, walks to the beat of her own drum. And look, she is the youngest person, and we've double-checked this and fact-checked this up the wazoo at this point, she's the youngest person in Stanford ever to give a class, to be a teacher in Stanford. As a, as a wow. freshman in Stanford University, she was giving a class on augmented reality. This is a girl who, until she was 15 years old, did not have a computer. Wow. Okay, this is perfect because I want <laughs> our listeners to really absorb that. If you think you're too old or you think that you're behind, I mean, this is just an incredible, incredible thing to hear. And honestly, we've done 150, 160 of these. We, we try and keep count because I'm so proud of this podcast, but this is wholly unique when it comes to experiences. So, Part of me wants to ask about your husband, but the other part, as the feminist would be, is like, I don't really care. But I'm guessing you <laughs> left him behind. So here's a beautiful thing. You know, I never blamed him for the misery of our marriage. And it was a miserable marriage. Let's not, because he was taught that his job was to police me. And so he took his job very seriously, right? Because, for example, maybe a month before I walked out the door, so I'm 42 years old, if you can imagine this. Um, I was dancing at a wedding. And now, you know, our weddings are completely separate. Men and women in different rooms, the machitza, no visibility between the two. And I got called into the rabbi's office as a 42-year-old woman because there were complaints that I was dancing too provocatively. Okay. And I was like, but guys, you don't believe in lesbianism. Who was I provoking? Who was I provoking? But the best part is it wasn't just me that got called in. He got called in first. He got called in by the rabbi first and said, control your wife. That's your job. So that's the point. That's why I never blamed him. And the reality is I left him behind, but I didn't because now, even though it took eight years, he left the community. He took off his black hat. He is no longer an ultra-Orthodox Jew. He married a woman in a modern community. They live in Tienak. They have television. They go to college. She has a profession. She does not cover her hair. She's a badass, and I adore her. <laughs> and, and, and Let them be well. Yeah, no, no. I mean, we do Passover together. I'm literally, oh. I, we're good friends, which just proves to me that it had nothing to do with my husband. It had everything to do with the role he was forced into by the world we lived in that said, I'm supposed to be subservient to him. And so what I do in Elite World Group 
is to try and help other women. Because in the end, freedom means not having to ask permission. And you cannot have that if you don't have financial prison, uh, freedom. You need to ask daddy or your boyfriend or your husband permission. You are not free. Well, you had to get to that point, certainly, where you were running this massive conglomerate, by the way, which wasn't nearly as big till you started to grow it, even though it was huge. Everybody knows elite model management. Uh, certainly, growing up for me, Seventeen magazine, where when it was really big, you know, it was a gigantic form, I just was obsessed, and we all knew about elite. But you got out, and you founded a luxury shoe company, which is kind of crazy considering <laughs> completely crazy Orthodox women have had to wear and they're clunky and black. Yeah. But how did that come about, you know, in the short form? And then what led you to elite? The shoe brand was my first attempt at helping to free women because me, I'm five feet tall. I'm virtually challenged. And my entire life, even though I was in that community, I always wore these mega heels, which was very questionable. And people always gave me grief for it. But I would say, show me in the Torah where it says I can't wear high-heeled shoes. I don't hear it. I don't listen. But I suffered from that because it was torturously painful. Most shoe brands are owned by men and designed by men who never have to wear what they actually make for us. And so my first idea was to create something that not only made women look beautiful, but feel comfortable, feel beautiful, because how can you feel confident if you're in pain? So the first idea was to eradicate pain and destroy this concept in the fashion world that I found, this whole suffering for beauty. That is a male construct that if we're still talking about that today, that is ludicrous. And by the way, when I was there, I was told, Julia, don't say the word comfort. Mm, comfort and luxury, they don't really go together. If you want La Perla to be luxurious, you should never use the word comfort. And my response to that was, excuse my language, fuck that. <laughs> no, we're going to change the industry. We're going to not make fashion just for women. We're going to make it for women. And then I extrapolated that when I turned, took over La Perla, we created the first ever stretch levers lace so that when you wear a thong, you don't feel like you're in a prison cell and that someone is holding you hostage, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Again, erratic. <laughs> you're holding our tushies hostage. Exactly. I mean, Again, this whole idea that we should torture ourselves to look good is ludicrous and unnecessary. And there's so much technology to make that, to eradicate that. You can have beauty and luxury. We have proven it. And this whole athleisure thing, we fought for that. We want to be comfortable. And so the second of the part, the third evolution of that is, okay, I'm working on making women feel more comfortable, but it's not enough. I need women to feel strong and powerful and know what's inside of them. And I need to utilize technology, innovation, social media, every tool at my disposal to make an army of financially independent women. And so that's why I took over Elite World Group because honestly, between you and me, it took Silvio a year to convince me to do that because I had patented some products that are just coming out now, uh, the shapewear which again is to eradicate that Bridget Jones moment where you put the shapewear underneath you, but it's beige, black, nude, and it's extraordinarily ugly. And then you can't bring the girl or guy home because you're on Paris to take your dress off. Right. It's got to be built into the clothes. 
I literally made it, we created a different way of incorporating um, color into material. So that's like Elastigirl. And so it's colored. It's got patterns. It looks like a negligee, except it's shapewear. So again, that was the idea of freeing women from discomfort. My, my fashion brand in 1972 is the first ever sizeless brand. We use scanning technology and it literally gives us your measurements and we send you a product that is your size. We have no sizing so that women shouldn't feel bad about themselves. I'm tired of women being made to feel bad of what they look like, how they dress, who they are. And then the next part of that, okay, was again, that melding of technology and realizing that right now, where we're sitting at this crossroads of communication and advertising and interaction, that because the talent is now the media, they have the audience, right? What is media? Media is whoever has the audience. You are media. Why? Because millions of people listen to your podcast. You are the talent and you have the audience, but it's the truth. And when you think about that and you understand that the talent, they are the media, then what I understood is my responsibility is to help them actually build themselves into brands and networks by bringing in-house Producers, directors, filmographers, videographers, content creators, everyone that an NBC has or a CBS or a Vogue, I brought that in-house to help my talent transform their social media from bikini pics into actual networks. How are you different? And we've skipped over how you jumped to CEO from starting a whistling <laughs> shoe company, but I think our <laughs> listeners can can get the point that this was one foot in front of the other and making literally it was a torturous journey. Of course. I failed a thousand times. I, I have a book coming out in April, and I am so ridiculously honest. Like I realized, you know, I wrote it as if I was talking to myself without really thinking that other people are going to read it. <laughs> But you're going to see how many mistakes I made. It was a very painful, difficult journey. It's not like I woke up one morning and said, okay, I'm leaving. And then my shoe brand was successful and this was successful. That's not how it happened. It was hell. Right. It's like walking a marathon in sky high Manila Blahniks, uncomfortable and total hell. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates it's faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you talk about Elite World and how you turned it into this mosaic of opportunities with under one roof, how are you different from a CAA or a, an, 
UTA, you know, some of these major houses that have talent under there. They've got the social media people that if you want to write a book, we'll we'll handle your book. You want to go into, you know, becoming a TikTok influencer, we'll handle that. How are you guys different? I love that question. So there's actually many, many answers to that, but I'll start with the, I think the crux of the difference uh, is that we're the British fleet, right? We maneuver quickly. We change based on what I see coming forward, right? We started, I took over the company in 2019, in April, 2019. By August, 2019, I was building metaverse and avatars before anyone was talking about it. When we spoke about digital and using and transforming talent into brands and businesses and utilizing their social media, it was not cool to talk about social media. People in the other, you know, in the industry as a whole was like, no, no, magazines are never gonna go away. Nothing is gonna change. It always made me think of blacksmith sitting there when that first automobile drove down the street saying, oh, this smelly contraption, it's never going to change. Horses will be around forever. Sorry, guys, no more horses. So the reality is that we are maneuverable. We, our focus is on transforming our talent into an army of financial independent people. And everything we've done has been towards that goal. And we don't just represent the top stars. Of course, we've got the Kendall Jenners and the Sia's and the Ciara's and the singers and the, uh, you know, the athletes and the mountain climbers and the deep sea divers. I don't care what platform you use, because to me, whether it's a it's a tennis court or a football stadium or a runway, that to me is a platform. That is your platform of fame that it puts you in the public eye. But the purpose of that, that's not the end all and be all, because there's only so long you can play tennis. There's only so long that you can walk a runway or, or throw a football. What happens afterwards? So what I wanted to do was to co- utilize all the technology at our, finger, at our fingertips, transform talent into media. So when they're 70 and they're sleeping, they're still making money because they utilize the time that they're in the public eye to build themselves into a brand, to tell people not just what they do, but who they are, what they stand for, what matters to them. And, and so the first part was to give them longevity. And then the second part was to give them immortality because the metaverse and the avatars that we're doing, the team that we've assembled, again, we've been working on this now for almost three years and we are so far advanced. Our avatars are the most hyper-realistic avatars. I know we sent you because it's so much better to show than tell they're mind blowing. They're incomparable. You saw they're incomparable to anything out there. Well, yes. And and I would just back up a little bit and press the pause button on the metaverse to explain to our listeners, some of whom don't really quite understand the, the concept. It is sort of a digital alternative universe where people, it's expected, will hang out, purchase, attend concerts, events in the digital world with people they know, have meetings. It would be like Zoom on who knows what drug, uh, but you, you've already started to do yeah. all kinds of uh, marketing plans with Steve Madden and Tommy Hilfiger. You are yep. well ahead. Everybody thinks that Zuckerberg and, and Facebook suddenly exploded <laughs> this you. onto the universe. And you're saying, <laughs> you. um, hello, been there already. 
Oh my God, I am so happy you said that. Because <laughs> yes, that's exactly how I feel. And only in the sense that it just proves what my daughter and I have experienced many times. That when it comes to technology, women are not listened to. And when a man says it, everybody listens. We have been building and creating virtual and metaverse and avatars for years. And I'm sure all many other companies did as well. But it wasn't until a man made the announcement that people go around and, and take notice. And I find that consistently when Miriam won her first um, hackathon, you know what a hackathon is, right? Where they oh, sure. bring all these college students together and she won her first hackathon. I think she was 16 or 17 years old. She went up to get her prize and the guy handing her the prize said, where's the guy who helped you? And was oh, looking around for a guy. Kidding. I kid you not. Who do I kill? When it comes to technology, I'm serious. It's ludicrous. When it comes to technology, when we women said, hey, this is the future. This is what's going to happen. This is going to give our talent eternity. They're going to be walking 17 runways simultaneously in 17 countries. We're going to make digital because it's not just like Zoom. But of course, Zoom is interactive. But imagine if with our scanning technology, you can scan yourself into a world. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to say with who we're doing this, but imagine if you can karaoke with the woman who wrote the song. Oh my gosh. Think I'm about there. it. I mean, the opportunities are endless. Oh, and I want to be like with Taylor Dane singing Love Will Lead You Back. Can you imagine? And if Taylor Dane's avatar, who, by the way, <laughs> sounds like Taylor, talks like Taylor, moves like Taylor, and has a predetermined you know, we'll embed AI and then we're working on that now. But for now, Taylor's avatar would have predetermined things that they would say to you like, oh, wow, you sing so well. Let's sing another song together. It becomes experiential, interactive. And, and, and our talent could be writing songs 50 years from now. Well, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. And you, you may say, Liz, I just explained that. But to the broader question of the metaverse, I mean, a few years ago, this sudden pushback began uh, against magazines that photoshopped cover models shaving imperceptible flaws like, you know, the wrinkle in the area of the hand between the thumb and the index finger. I mean, we could go back to the 80s when on some of Cindy Crawford's early covers, photo editors erased her famous mole. Do you ever worry? that by eliminating the entire human image and replacing it with digital twins and avatars, you may cause the early death of your own agency? I really love that question because to me, technology is not an evil or a good. It is a tool and it's how we utilize that tool that makes all the difference. So I remember when the whole avatar conversation happened when I was just coming into the industry, and people were saying, oh, avatars are going to replace humans. It's going to be this death of, you know, but here's the thing. You've got fantasy football. You've got a thousand video games with football. Do you still want to go to a stadium and see real people play? You do. The reality is that human nature is such that we need each other. We need social contact. We need to be physically present and laugh and smile together. This isn't a subtraction of, it's an addition to, because think of it as when you go shopping online, why do people shop online? Because it's expedient. It's convenient. You can do it in your bedroom, in your pajamas, with your hair up, no makeup, right? 
But the thing that's missing from online shopping is the experiential factor. It's boring. You're not talking to anyone. There's, you know, when you go into a store, someone calls your name and says, Liz, it's so lovely to see you. I saw you in that event. You look fabulous. You feel good, right? The bar that knows your name. There is none of that in, in, in digital. And there's none of that in online shopping experiences. So what we do is we're not making avatars of fake people. We're making avatars out of our real talent. We're giving them another tool in their toolkit. And the same person who's running their career has their avatar. So they're never going to over-proliferate one over the other because it all has to be part of that person's brand and image. So let's imagine you have a talent who's a, uh, a tennis player. That's the easiest thing. Tennis players, they'll get that, but traditionally they get that ad campaign with the watch or the perfume. You see it on a billboard or in a magazine and that's it. Imagine if that same tennis player could give virtual tennis lessons to people who could never afford her on a real basis. Wow. Think, I mean, again, to me, it creates connectivity in a world where you have access to people that you would never have access to. Imagine if, um, sorry, I'm terrible with names. The guy who plays golf better than anyone. Oh, Tiger Woods. Imagine <laughs> if, right? I don't know how much a Tiger Not so much anymore, but go on. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> terrible with any athletes of any kind. That is not my forte. Um, but imagine if, I don't know how much it would cost for Tiger Woods to give a golf lesson. I'm guessing it's pretty right. exorbitant. Right. But his avatar? Imagine if, with AI embedded, his avatar could give lessons to 10 million people. I see that as a democratization in, in yes. many regards where yes. you can, uh, you know, level that playing field, so to speak. Exactly. But let's bring Think it about back fashion to shows. Like right. for just a second, if you don't mind, because it's just so exciting to me. Do you mind if I just give you one more example? Will you forgive Go me? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> of course. Um, the other example is fashion shows. Like, you know that the people invited to fashion shows are people who spend a lot of money or who are a magazine editor or a big influencers. Those are the people invited to fashion shows. And of course, now they, they show the fashion show in a video online. That's not very interactive or exciting. Imagine if you as a person, not because you spend a lot of money, not because you have a lot of money, but you can jump into a virtual fashion show where you can literally stop one of the models and say, hey, can you come here? Can you turn around? Can I see that in another color? And then you can talk to people in the audience. You get that experiential factor democratized. You are democratizing everything. I and love what you said. The designer, you could arguably say that they could get real-time focus group feedback. Oh, wait a minute. They want it in lavender, not yellow. Exactly. It's, again, communication, connectivity. And it's not the head of some fancy magazine telling them this. It's people sharing their true feelings. It's organic. It's authentic. It's exciting. Julia, let's bring it all back to you because people <laughs> are listening and saying, oh, she sounds so energetic and so positive and she's full of optimism. How did you get through your darkest point? What was that point? And what would you advise people today who might be listening? This country is going through a horrific time, obviously. Oh, yes, it is. 
what advice would you give them on scratching their way out of the abyss that they feel they might be in? That's a really powerfully strong question. Uh, I think, you know, I was incredibly miserable. I was not well. I mean, I'll be honest. I was not well when I left. I was so lost and so confused and so shocked. And, you know, running that shoe brand for the first time without knowing what an invoice was, without ever having met with a lawyer, without understanding anything about a company. I mean, the mistakes I made were (laughs) vast and numerous, but I got the right to make my own mistakes. And that pulled me through. The fact that even with all my misery and even with confusion and fear and not knowing anything about the outside world, at least I was choosing, I was making the decisions. And it was that, that feeling of freedom that propelled me. And I said, I would rather be lonely I would rather be miserable than not be free. And I think to make a giant life change, you have to know in your mind what the end goal is. And then you cannot let anyone or anything stand in your way. I had people coming after me, trying to attack me, you know, belittling me. I mean, if I tell you, you know, we're talking about metaverse and avatars and how when a woman says metaverse is the new future, nobody listens. When a guy says it, oh, now everybody's super excited. Annoying. But you should know that when I tried to create the stretch levers lace, which we did and sold extraordinarily well, I got patted on the head. You know, mm. I-, I was constantly belittled, constantly told, well, who are you? I'm the expert. That's not how it's done. Your voice needs to be louder than all the other voices, because believe me, every man and many women will come and try to stand in your way. And the only and I tell people all the time, uh, I talk to myself all the time. My voice has to be louder than anybody else's. And you have to say it out loud, because when you say something out loud, you bring it from the ephemeral into the reality. Talk to yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror. I literally do it every day. And your voice has to be louder. Don't wait for permission. Don't wait for your turn. You have to seize opportunity. You have to force the world to acknowledge you. Because if you are not single-minded in your focus, you won't, it won't happen. But I promise, I am a perfect example that if you are single-minded and stubborn and hardworking and keep learning and educating yourself, If you eradicate the fear of the unknown, you will succeed. As you said, when you started this, people are afraid of what they don't know. That to me is the death of success. Timidity is the death of success. You want to be successful? Throw out timidity. Throw out fear of the unknown. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Julia Hart, I'll tell you something. I don't need the golf lessons from Tiger. I don't need the tennis lessons from McEnroe. I need the life lesson. And that to me, what you've just given our listeners is priceless. So valuable. If it were up for auction, I'd bid as much money as I possibly could. (laughs) But thankfully, you have given it to our listeners for free. I I wish you the best of luck at Elite World Group. But something tells me you don't need anybody's luck. You just... 
keep looking in that mirror and aren't we the sisterhood we've got to look out for each other you know and i i i read up about you i did my research you are an extraordinary person you have accomplished so much i was like well damn that means this that and the other you're like well, this woman is badass she's awesome well, I hope we get know, to meet each other in person one day. It's absolutely. Uh, speaking of which, you've got to come on the show Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business. I want you to promote your book when you're ready for it. But more importantly, I want to bring you on and tell the world you were doing the metaverse years before the rest of these. Thank you. Like in Silicon I'm, Valley. Yeah, it's, it's outrageous. It's a chutzpah, you know? It is That's a right. literal chutzpah. That's right. That's what we got, a chutzpah. Uh, great to have you, Julia. Yeah. Thanks to all of you for listening. This one's a valuable one. They all are. But boy, this really gives you the roadmap. So take it and start running. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.